Matthew, uh, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. God, I pray for this in our, our church, in our lives. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Amen. We may be seated. May we be blessed by the reading and hearing of God's word this morning. Amen. It's one last announcement that I uh, forgot. Next week we will... Uh, be taking up the golden offering, uh, so please be asking God to uh, prepare your hearts for what we will give uh, to the golden offering. You have more questions about that, just come see me after the service, but we'll take that up as a special offering next Sunday. Um, as you know, we are in the middle of this series called This Is Us, and we're looking at who are we, who, who are we, the, this people of God here at Powell's Chapel Baptist Church. And so we've been journaling through our, our mission statement, which is we want to know God and we want to make him known. Uh, we want to fully know the best of our abilities, who God is and who God's called us to be. And then we're to go and take that message of who God is, the redeeming uh, redemption of the world. We're to take that message into this lost world. And so we've been looking at that in a lot of different ways. We looked at that last week uh, about what, what would it really look like for us to be gospel-centered people. And we looked at who Jesus is. Who is the gospel? Who is this good news? And so we looked at Jesus Christ, the incarnation of a holy God. And yet, then, if there's good news, there's also the bad news. And the bad news, because of the good news, reveals who we are without the gospel. Therefore, we need the good news to redeem us, to save us to set us free, to live on mission with God. This morning we're going to look at what does it look like for us to be a disciple-making community. And so our our core values here at the church, we want to be a God-glorifying community. That is, we really want to worship God. The, The primary purpose God's put us on this planet is to worship Him. All of us in the room are worshipers. It's just what do we decide to worship? I mean, everyone on the planet will worship something. We see that all over the world. But God's desire is that we would fully worship Him. And so we want to be a God-glorifying community. We looked last week, as I just said, we want to be a gospel-centered community. You see, that's what those two things uh, separate us from all other communities in the world. Because uh, there's all kinds of communities in the world that come together, that gathered even this morning. There, there is going to be football communities all over the place and they gather together to watch uh, grown men carry a pigskin up and down the field and they'll worship I mean I, I don't know if you've ever been to a football game or have been to a college football game but you get into a stadium of 60 70 80 100,000 people when that little boy little man runs across a little white line that place goes crazy in worship and yet God's called us to have that same worship for him. So we know worship happens everywhere. But what marks us, the church, here at Powell's Chapel, the church universal, is that we want to glorify, we want to worship God, and we want to be gospel-centered. The thing that separates us above everyone is this, the gospel. It's nothing we've did, it's because of what he did. And then we talked about a few weeks ago, we want to be a, a loving 
missional community that lives on mission with God. And then this morning we're going to talk about we want to be a disciple-making community. You see, this thing about discipleship is all over the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. It's where everything is the the climax of the New Testament, really. If you remember Jesus' first words to his disciples were this. He said to the early disciples, when he went and called them by name, he said, hey, follow me. That's the call. He said to the disciples, follow me. And if you remember at the very end of Luke, He says to the people, to the disciples, follow me again. So he starts his ministry with the disciples by following him, and he ends his ministry with telling the disciples to follow him. And so what were they following Christ to do? We find it in Luke. Luke says this about Jesus. Jesus came, what, to seek and save that which was lost. But his primary way of doing that was through disciples, is to make disciples that fully know him and that will fully make him known all over the world. You see, this is the one thing that will never happen in heaven. Do we realize that? All the other things we've talked about, it, it, it will be a God-glorifying community in heaven, right? Everything, we see that in Isaiah, we see that in Revelation, that when we get into the throne room of God, All of us will fall on our face and worship God forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen? That's what we'll do that in heaven. And we also know this about heaven. We know that heaven is a place that is solely focused on Christ Jesus. He reigns on his throne. And so we know that heaven is a gospel-centered place. And we also know this, that that heaven is a, a... a place that's on mission with God to glorify Him. So the one thing that the church cannot do in heaven is probably the most important thing that we can do here on this planet is to make disciples. Do you realize that there will be no more disciple-making opportunities in heaven? Amen? Thank God for that. Thank God we don't have to go around in heaven and make sure everyone in heaven is saved. But that leaves the question to us, This morning, what are we doing to make disciples today? If we really believe that there's no opportunity when we get to heaven to make disciples, then what are we doing today? That means that there's going to be a lot of people left that aren't in heaven because they're not disciples. Amen? That ought to frighten us. We talked about this, Frank talked about this several weeks ago. There's 7 billion people on the planet. And out of those 7 billion people, most of those are not believers. So most of those will die today and spend eternity apart from Christ Jesus. Unless they become disciples. Let's think about that for a moment. 7 billion people. 2 billion people have never even heard the name of Jesus. So if they die today... They'll spend eternity apart from hell. They will have no opportunity to become a disciple after their death. And yet Jesus, the very last thing he tells us to do is follow him. And what was he doing? He was going and making disciples. That was his primary mission here 
on the planet was to seek and save that is which was lost because if, if he seeks and saves and those are saved, they're going to, out of being saved, they're going to bring glory to God. Right? When a sinner falls uh, on his face and surrenders his whole life to God, in that moment, Luke tells us that there's a party that happens because of one sinner repenting. So they become, in that moment, a God-glorifying person. Not because of what they've done, but because of what Christ Jesus has just done for them. And so it is our obligation to go and make disciples. It's what Jesus called. It's what the Bible say. It's the great commission. And if we know what the word commission means, the word means to be on mission. And so what is the mission and who's the messenger of the mission? The mission is to make disciples. And who's calling us to make disciples? Christ Jesus. So we're to go and make disciples. Five things we see in this passage this morning about going and making disciples. What would it look like to be a disciple-making community? Let's read the passage again together. I'll read you follow along in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 28. Now the 11 disciples... Remember, there was 12. The 12th had just uh, committed suicide because he betrayed his Lord and Savior and he felt horrible about it. And so he's no longer around. So the 11 disciples that were with Jesus went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw, the disciples saw him, Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I taught on this uh, just briefly the other night uh, at our uh, Operation Christmas Child. The five things we see in this passage. The first one is this. The first thing it will take all of us in the room to be a disciple-making community is our availability. You see that in the passage in verse 17. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And so there had to be this conversation that Jesus had had. We see that he had it with some ladies uh, back just a few moments ago, uh, a few uh, verses before, in verse uh, 10, it said, Jesus said to them, these are the ladies, go, do not be afraid, but go and tell my brothers, go and tell the disciples to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And now here, they respond by being available to where Jesus had told them to go. You see, if they were not available to what God had just told through these ladies to be, they would have missed a whole lot. They would have missed everything. They would have missed uh, seeing the Lord sa- their Lord and Savior. They'd missed the Great Commission. They'd missed being empowered to do the Great Commission. But it started with their availability. And I wonder for us, church, today, are we available to be on mission with God? Or is there so many things in our life that distract us from the Great Commission? Oh, but I, I've got this, Jesus. You remember what he said to in, in the Gospels? He's talking to people and he says, let the dead bury their dead. Let the, 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 the 
The field would be plowed. You'd just be on mission with me. And yet, I wonder, church, how often we come up with a thousand and one excuses not to be first and foremost available. Oh, my kids. Man, there's so many things going on in my life. There's this, there's that, there's this, there's that. And God is simply saying to us, hey, be on mission with me. But it's going to start with our availability. You see, when you look throughout the Bible, and you see all the great men and women of the Bible, Jesus never gives them the commission before he understands and sees that they're available to be on mission with him. Right? Abraham, we see that. He didn't lay out the whole plan that how he was going to say. He just said to Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. But then he said, I need you to go somewhere to get prepared. We see that with Paul. All these men and all these women, it started with their availability. And yet, I think so often, we want to know exactly how God is going to use us. We want to know all the details of how God's going to use us to make disciples. And unless we know all the details, then we're not available. That's not the heart that God requires. That's not the heart God asks for. He's asking for, and we'll get to this in a moment, he's asking us for our availability that will lead us to obedience. And so, church, this morning, I'll ask you this. Are you available to be used by God on a daily basis to make disciples? Are you available? The next thing that we see in this passage is this. Verse 2. When they went to the mountain, as Jesus had directed them, when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Not only do we need to be available to where God's called us to, but we must live lives that worship God. You see, this passage is such an important passage because this is going to set up the rest of the commission. Right? See, this one word in this text, the word worship, says something about about who Jesus Christ is. You see, if Jesus Christ wasn't the incarnation of God, would Jesus not have said to them when they began to worship him, hey, no, don't do that, that's idolatry. We see that throughout the Bible as well. When angels would arrive on the scene, the people of God would fall down and begin to worship the angels, and the angels said, no, 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 no. And yet Jesus allows his people to worship him in this text, saying to us, hey, this is God incarnate. That God pulled on skin, and now his people are worshiping him. And I wonder for us, church, do we worship God that way? Are we true worshipers of who Jesus Christ is? You see, if we're not true worshipers of him, we'll never go and go and fulfill the Great Commission. We just won't. If we don't really worship him, we don't believe in him, if we don't think he's supreme over all things, then we're not going to go and talk about him. We just won't. You you know that in your own life. I know that in my life. The things I don't really believe in, I don't really talk about much. I don't get excited about much. I could take it or leave it. But when we become true worshipers of God, it's not a take it or leave it mentality. It is, oh, this is the risen Savior of the world, and we will fall and worship him forever and ever and ever and ever. 
We see that in Isaiah chapter 6. Right? In Isaiah chapter 6, he falls behold this holy God and is worshiping God. And then he says in response to that, send me. Because he's had this in, in, encounter with the holy God that's changed him forever. We see that with Paul on the road to Damascus. His worship experience changed him forever. And I wonder for us, church, do we have daily worship experiences that change us. See, if your only worship experience is from 10.15 to 11.30 on a Sunday morning, I promise, I say it all the time, that's not enough. That is not enough. You, you cannot survive on crumbs. And if all this is, this is the only time that you come and worship God, you will not survive. This is not enough for you, I promise. 35 minutes of me teaching and 15 minutes of Jared leading us his words, that is not enough. That ought to just whet our appetites for the rest of the week. Like, if you don't leave here every Sunday morning encouraged and desirous to go and do this on your own, then we're missing the point. This is the beginning. It's not, it's not the, the dessert of the week. It's the beginning that says, man, I want to have that experience with God all week long do we worship god every day all day the third thing we see this so it starts with our availability then it starts with us worshiping if if we're not available we'll never we're so busy then we'll be too busy to worship so it's going to start with our availability are you available to worship a holy god have you made time in your day to worship god we, we hear all the time, do you have a quiet time? Do you spend time with God? It starts with your availability to do those things. Have you set a time apart that's God's and God's alone each day to worship Him, to know Him? The next thing he says this. They fall and they worship this holy God, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. We see the next thing comes with this attitude of submission. Like, read that passage. Jesus, the incarnation of God, says, all authority is mine. Everything. So he's setting himself up, Jesus, as the incarnation God that has all authority. So that when he tells them what to do next, they realize, wait, this is the God of the universe that's telling me what to do. Do we realize that Jesus has all authority? He's in total control. It's called the supremacy of God. Do we believe that he is superior over all things in control of all things? All means all. Everything. So he's saying all authority is mine. We talked about that a little bit last week. That that are we available to worship God and that we have this understanding of who God is. God is in control of all things. And then out of that, we see this heart of submission. 
You see, he's setting himself up. He says, I'm over all things, therefore no one can be my equal. Therefore, there has to be this attitude of submission with his people. Do we submit ourselves with the understanding that God is in authority over all things? Or do we have this begrudging submission? See, God's not concerned about begrudging submission. That's not what he wants from us. He wants a life of total surrender, of total freedom, of total offering. See, offering is not begrudging submission. Uh, Oftentimes, my kids will begrudgingly submit, but their heart isn't in it. They just do it so they don't get a spanking. But there's no heart change in them. That's not what God wants from God's people. He wants our heart change through our understanding of who he is. Like, man, this is the God of the universe. I will submit all to him. All authority has been given to Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Because if we believe that, then we'll understand his call on our lives as believers. The call says this. In verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The fourth thing that we see is this. To be a disciple-making community, we must live obedient lives to the call that he's placed on our life. See that word there? You can highlight this in your Bible, the word there the word go means this as if you've already gone he's saying as you go this this is he's uh, uh, assuming that they're going to go he's saying you're going to go when you go because you've had an encounter with me this is what i want you to do in your ongoing going this is what you are to do he gives them two things two things that he calls every believer every discipler to do the first one is, is to baptize. And we can get caught up in that. I, I want to teach just briefly what we believe here about baptism here at Powell's Chapel. Baptism is not the thing that saves you. There, there's no special, uh, well, there's a lot of special stuff in that water, and, and that, but there's no healing special water. There's nothing magical that happens when you get into that baptistry. Other than you get a little chilly. Nothing, nothing magical is going to happen back there. But God's called us to go and baptize people. What for? What is baptism? Baptism is full submersion that represents what Jesus Christ did for us. Right? When we're standing in the baptistry, we, we are saying to him, we're dead in our trespasses and we've placed our hope and belief in our, our hope that Christ will save us. And then we say, to, we say this, in, in the likeness of Christ Jesus, we baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit into his death. That's the, the representation that Christ was laid in the tomb, that he died. But then when we come up out of the water, it's a representation that Christ himself was raised from the dead. Therefore, we have been raised from the dead because of what Christ Jesus did for us. So baptism is an outward profession of an inward change of our life. And so what he's saying to the the disciples in this moment, 
go and baptize people, reminding them of the gospel message that I gave to you. You see, baptism is a reminder to me that's being baptized and to the congregation of what Christ did for every one of us. It's another moment to spread the gospel message. It's through baptism. And I often get this. Well, I don't know if God told me to be baptized yet. What? Like The first response in our salvation ought to be obedience through believer's baptism. So if you're unwilling to be baptized, then I say you're probably uh, uh, not a believer. Because if you're not willing to be baptized, and you're not willing to be obedient. If you're not willing to, to go into the water, there's no telling what else you're not willing to do. And so baptism is our first place that we are able to show our obedient, changed heart into what God has called us to do. So what he's saying is go and make disciples, baptizing them to show to an outside dying world what has happened in their hearts. So it's an outward profession of an inward change. So all of us in the room, if you're a believer, you must be baptized not for your salvation, but for your obedience to the call that God's placed on your life and to those that are outside the faith to see there's been a change in you through obedience. So that's the first one he tells us. The second thing he tells us to do and we obey is to do this, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. I'll probably step on some toes here. I am not the only preacher in the room then based on this passage. Let me say that one more time. I'm not the only preacher in the room. If you're a believer today, you now have became, become a preacher. You've become a teacher. And I don't care if you have the gift of teaching or not. I care about your obedience to going and teaching those that are apart from Christ Jesus all that he's commanded. Right? And so if you all, if you're a believer here this morning... You all have the call in your life to be a teacher. Now that all set up on a lot of toes. Because here's what I know. We're not all teaching. You're waiting for me to do it. And God's call is not to wait for Todd to do it. But God's call is that you and you and you and you go and teach. And I think the primary reason we don't go and teach It's because we have no idea what to go and teach. Which means, tells me, it's not about your brain that's the problem. It's your heart that's the problem. Because God's word says, I'll give you the words. When you don't have the words, I'll give them to you. So you may not have the gift of teaching, but do you have the obedience to be a teacher? I I said this on uh, Wednesday night. If, if you think that you're going to be the cause by your teaching of someone not coming to know Christ because you're not a good teacher, then, then you think that you're the savior of the world and that you better have it all right and have all your I's dotted and all your T's crossed just right because then it all hinges on you, which leaves no room for God himself or the Holy Spirit. And so what God is saying, hey, are you available And do you worship me? And will you submit to me? And will you obey me? And will you go and teach? Because I'll do the rest. I'll do the rest. We heard a story this morning in our deacons meeting. 
that a six-year-old boy led a four-year-old boy to know Christ Jesus and he's still saved today. So if a six-year-old boy can lead a four-year-old boy to Christ, then go teach. Because I got a six-year-old and there's no telling what she would say. And I know when Cedar, he'll flick boogers at you. But, I mean, there's just no telling. But he's available. That little six-year-old boy was available when his little brother began to ask questions. And that little six-year-old began to teach him the fundamentals of the faith. And now, 30 years later, that guy is still walking with the Lord. So if a six-year-old can do it, a 60-year-old can do it for sure. But my greatest fear is we don't know what to teach. And we don't know what to teach because this pulpit isn't teaching what to teach. Because I, I know this. I'm faithful with the text. But my great fear is you yourselves are not getting into God's word on a daily basis to figure it out on your own. You see, when you begin to have those encounters with Jesus and God's word begins to illuminate in your heart, you will desire to go and teach it. You will. So God says, Go. And make disciples, baptizing them. That means showing that there's conversion that's been happening. And then just begin to sit down and teach them what he's taught you. Just sit down over coffee and just begin to go through God's word together. There's been no greater privilege in my life, in ministry, than to really make disciples. Like as great of an honor it is to preach God's word, from the pulpit, it does not compare to sitting down over coffee, going through God's word, teaching another young man or another young woman in the faith what God's word says. I would trade this 45 minutes for many of those 45 minutes every day of the week to teach God's word. You see, this morning, if you've never, never made a disciple through the work of Christ Jesus, I'd say you're being disobedient. If you've never walked with a young man or a young woman just a few months, days, years behind you in the faith, you've never sat with someone and made a disciple through the work of Jesus Christ, I would say you're being disobedient. How do I say that? With all authority, because God's word says, go and you make disciples. It's not my job to make all disciples. It's not. My job as your pastor is to equip you, Ephesians 4.10, for the work of the ministry. What's the work of the ministry? The work of the ministry, the work of the church, is to make disciples. So my job primarily is to teach you how to go be teachers. And you go and make disciples. That's the role of the pastor. I cannot make all the disciples. I don't have enough time, energy in my day to sit down with everyone in this congregation and we're a congregation of 60 people and disciple every single one. I need you to obey God's word to make disciples. You see, that's one of the reasons. It's not just that we have a sign-up sheet in the hallway to do children's ministry because we don't need we, we just need workers. No, we need people that will obey God's word and go and make disciples with little kids. I need your help as a dad, not as a pastor. I need your help in discipling Tennyson and Cedar. I need your help. Let me say that again. I need your help. I'm a pastor. I'm educated. I've got the education. I've done it. 
but I still need you to fulfill God's call on your life to disciple my two little kids. I need that. Because that frees me up to make disciples here. Because I can't be here and down there discipling my kids in Sunday school. I just can't do it. So I need you to partner with me to disciple my kids. It's not your primary responsibility to do all the discipleship. That's my primary responsibility. But I promise this. When Tennyson is coming home with those Bible verses that Miss Lee is doing and Miss Jerry's doing, it gives me a lot of opportunity to begin to disciple them. And so I'd call and i plead with every one of you in the room. We need people to teach God's word. We need that. And I call you to obedience. I don't call you to obligation. Don't, don't go sign up on that sheet out of obligation. Please don't. It'll be a disaster. Do it out of obedience to God's call on your life to make disciples. And here's the last thing I'll leave you with. And this is the greatest promise for me in this passage. This is the greatest promise. Verse 20 says this. Go and teach them. Observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. God, through Christ Jesus, is sending you out to make disciples, not with your power, but with his power. Do you get that? Here's another way to say it. The same Holy Spirit that resides in you, and you, and you, and you, is the same Holy Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. It's the same Holy Spirit that when Jesus said to his disciples, go and heal people, they went and healed people. Not because they had some magic touch. They went with, in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit, and they, through that power, began to heal people and raise people from the dead. That same Holy Spirit is in you. You are being sent out with that power. Do we believe that this morning? You see, when we believe that this morning, then we'll be obedient to God's call in our life because then it doesn't rest on us. It rests on the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I come in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit so that your wisdom and your faith might not rest on me, but in the demonstration of the Holy Spirit. So you are being sent out by God with the Holy Spirit in you to make disciples. And so... If it doesn't go the way it's supposed to go, it's not about you. It's because Christ Jesus did not illuminate the eyes and the heart of man for your message. If I go, if I'm available to go, and and I go in obedience, and I go and I preach, and I go and I teach, then God does the rest. God is going to open the hearts and eyes of people to reveal his his son Jesus to them. That's how you got here. Because I guarantee the morning you got saved, you did not wake up out of your bed and think, today's the day. Today is the day I'm going to get saved. That's not what happened for me. I woke up that morning and thought, man, today's the day I'm going to get drunk. Today's the day I'm going to go party. Today's the day I'm going to have some great time with my friends. And then Jesus said, oh, no, 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 no. I I got another plan for your life. But I had a man in my life at 16 years old, had been praying for me and praying for me and praying for me. And he was available that night when he was laid on his heart to invite me to a lock-in. 
And then out of that, he realized that he worshipped God. That man, at 16-year-old, he worshipped God. There was something different about him in a locker room. And if you've ever been in a male locker room, it, it is not the most holy place on the planet. But there was something about him in that locker room. I'm like, man, that guy is different than every other guy in this locker room. It says he worshipped God. He spent time with the Lord every day at 16. He submitted his will and his life to God to be obedient to God to bring me the gospel message. And here's what I know. I don't remember one word that my friend Court shared with me with the gospel. I don't remember it at all. Because it wasn't the words that Court shared with me that changed my life. It was the demonstration of the power of God, the Holy Spirit of God that changed my life. That's what I remember. I remember I was going this way that night and I went to a lock-in and I woke up the next day after saying and confessing my sins to God and I started going that way and that's all that I remember. And yet, he, Court, brought the power of the Holy Spirit with him that night. He, he doesn't, he's not a polished speaker. He's not a polished preacher. He, 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 he sells insurance. But he brought the power of the Holy Spirit into that conversation. And God used him to awaken my heart because God had a plan for my life. And here's what I know. We talked about it four weeks ago from Romans chapter 10. All that God's calling us to do is go and preach his word. The rest is up to him. If we really believe that God is sovereign in control of all things. Do we believe that, church? So all means all. That's what the Greek word tells us. So that means the salvation of all people. That means it rests on him. It doesn't rest on me, the preacher. I just got to go and be available. Then he does what he can only do, and he awakens people from death to life. And yet the main way that God does that is I get to be a conduit of that grace and that power and that message of the gospel. We're just conduits. From God to the unbeliever. Will we go and make disciples? Realizing it doesn't rest on us? Will we leave here today? The first question you have to ask yourself is are you available to be a conduit of the Holy Spirit into the life of an unbeliever? Do you worship God every day as your Lord and Savior? I'll teach on that one day. There's a difference between Lord and there's a difference between Savior. I promise you that. And then will we, through that, be submitted that we really realize that God is sovereign and in control of all things. That means the salvation of man. And that we will be obedient to his call in our life to baptize and to teach. And it's coming through the power of the Holy 